Welcome back to Crime Scene Queens. I am Laura, your friendly resident CSI and field mouse. And I'm Shelly, your legal beagle, your courtroom bitch, and, you know, I guess sometimes your resident court rep. (laughs) I love that. And we are here to take you outside of your basic bitch true crime podcast comfort zone and dive straight into the meat and bones of what we do as forensic practitioners, as crime scene investigators, and we tell you our process as we do things like investigate death, collect evidence, and how that goes from the scene all the way to the courtroom. Exactly. We also talk about different topics and concepts, so it's a little different for sure. We are not your typical true crime podcast. We're here for that change up. Absolutely. (laughs) So what are we going to talk about today? Well, before we do that, I thought I would bring up something that's kind of come into my wheelhouse lately amongst um, my group of CSI friends and in my community. And it's this concept of the fact that CSIs deserve a seat at the table. So what Mm -hmm. I mean by that is, as we've discussed in previous episodes, typically crime scene investigators are not sworn law enforcement. Mm-hmm. We are civilian employees. Now, of course, there's exceptions. So again, don't at me on social media about that. But what happens is, is we do our job on scene, collecting the evidence and getting information from victims and suspects in a completely different way than detectives. Exactly. We have an evidence-based approach to what we do. Yes. And the detectives and the chain of command that's present on scene has a completely different approach to what they do and both have significant value. And I have had the privilege of working for two places that for the most part incorporated me into the conversation about how that case was moving along, how new information was gathered and updated me. Oh, Mm -hmm. this happened. Particularly the second agency I worked for, I mean, I was included in every meeting, in every briefing, in every action plan, and all of the evidence was out on the table, and there was conversations about interviews. But How did you even have time for all that? We didn't. It's just (laughs) – we we literally didn't. It was – I mean, that city in particular, I know I've discussed before, was so – heavy on violent person-on-person crime that we were pretty much together more than I was with my family. And it was literally a matter of taking a break in the middle of an investigation to regroup and recoup, right? So Mm -hmm. it actually took me going to a training class for crime scene. I think it might have been a training on Uh, UVIR photography, which is a whole other topic I can't even get into now. Yeah. And the CSIs were sharing with me that their detectives like basically never talk to them. Really? Yeah. Like they they never have a conversation about the case. They're treated like pariahs. And why that's ridiculous is we have two very important sets of information. Yes. And if you don't merge that information, things get lost. Absolutely. And the case that was shared with me was an attempted murder where there was a stomping. Oh, okay. All yeah. right. So, right. So, super violent. So, I just want to put the uh, make this was not my case. The disclaimer. Guys. Yeah. Like, I'm not trying to plagiarize. This was not my case. Okay. So, there was a person that was stomped with a pair of sneakers 
And the CSI did what we do. She responded to the hospital. She documented the injuries with that scale of measurement, the Mm -hmm. little ruler that we've referred to in past episodes, just to show size and scale and scope Mm -hmm. of the injury. And she was able to document the bruising that showed up on this victim throughout the course of it developing. So in case you guys don't know, bruising does not show up the same way a sharp force trauma injury does. The bruise Mm -hmm. actually ages and becomes more visible as time goes on. Yes. So she was documenting that. Meanwhile, the detectives are out doing their things. She collects different pairs of shoes from the scene. And I guess they, at some point, had collected the suspect's shoes without... Right. But without sitting down at the table with her and reviewing her photographs, Mm -hmm. they went through the effort of submitting the shoes for all of these different testings from the laboratory, when in reality, all they would have had to do was have a meeting with her, review her pictures. Yeah. And you can visibly see in the photos where she is holding up the shoe on, like, we have a little photography stand, uh, guys. Mm -hmm. There's usually a photo station in every crime scene unit, and we have different props that will allow us to have evidence on the same plane. So when she takes the – another good reason why we take pictures with scale is that she's then able to print that image on a one-to-one ratio, which means the image is life-size. Yes. So she printed the image, held it next to the shoe, and my God – it it wasn't just copy paste like this was a brand new sneaker like all of the little defects at the wow. bottom. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow! Now speaking, the different characteristics exactly, which takes this shoe from a class piece of evidence mm-hmm. to an individual piece of evidence. So exactly. here we are with our CSI EDU. <laughs> yes. So everybody, evidence is the topic. Of our episode for today, Shelly. <laughs> yes, evidence. That's right. We're going to get into the different types of physical evidence, and we're going to get into a little bit of ethics. And then, Shelly, I'm sure you're going to have some amazing insight on, like, evidence admissibility. And, you know, you see in all these courtroom shows, oh, we're throwing that piece of evidence out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's there's so I, – there's – I could do multiple, multiple episodes. So I'm just going to kind of do a little condensed – yeah, I'll, I'll throw a little condensed legal spin yeah. on some stuff. Maybe as it applies, jump in because yes. I don't have your perspective okay. at all, which is why gotcha. you're such a good yin to my yang. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so anyways, class and individual evidence. Okay. So class evidence is something that is related to the crime scene – However, it could be associated with a group. So when we were discussing shoes a minute ago, if I wanted to go buy like Nike Air Force One size eight, okay, that's great. I see the shoe impressions in the sand outside the scenes. Maybe there's a shoe print through the home, but... What's to say that my suspects, Nike Air Force One size eights, are the ones that went through that crime scene? Exactly. Right. So, of course, this helps us delineate down possibility, Mm -hmm. but you are not allowed to use words like match or that that came from there. The definitives. 
Exactly. You're not allowed to say things definitively, whether it be in your notes or your crime scene report or testifying in court. You cannot say those things because there is a reasonable expectation that there are other Nike size eight Air Force Ones Mm -hmm. in existence in our area. Yes. However, let's just say at some point in time that Nike left Air Force One size eight shoe got like a tack in it or an, or a rock stuck mm-hmm. in it. Mm-hmm. And that alters the tread. It changes the pattern. Well, that rock or that nail or pin defect in that shoe in that exact proportion now creates an individual characteristic because statistically lightning striking twice about a rock of that exact size in that exact piece of tread creating that exact pattern is not like a thing. (laughs) Exactly. So I remember uh, to kind of relate to this. So like Vans shoes, right? So they have Mm -hmm. the um, honeycomb. Is it honeycomb Mm -hmm. shape on the bottom of them? Is that the proper? Yeah. So and every size, you know, six van is molded from the same mold. So Mm -hmm. Every one of those class characteristics on a size six van shoe is identical, but you're right. So you get a rock in there. So it makes one of those little diamonds or whatever a little bit larger. And therefore that is an individual or you step on something and, you know, it, sl- it makes a slice in it. And therefore, right. yeah, so those are all the individual characteristics. And it was pretty cool because when I uh, was teaching crime scene investigations, we actually do, you know, we do molds of our of all the the classism of all of their uh, their footwear and or their their you know shoe impressions. And it was really neat because you know you do it before lunch and then after lunch <laughs> you go and you dust them, you you know t- pick them up and everything. And it's kind of like the ashtrays from you know when I was a kid. You may, I used to make my dad ashtrays, so you know it's really <laughs> it's really fun. And and the class was just like this is so cool. So everyone in the class got to take home their you know their. Their, their shoe impressions? Yeah, their shoe impressions. It was really awesome. We did that in college too. And actually, I mean, casting shoe impressions is not easy, folks. I mean, I don't want to go off on a tangent because I want to stay on topic, but casting shoe impressions in dirt is not like you see on TV. And it's not as nice as you do in like a classroom environment, but it is kind of fun. And just to backtrack a little, evidence defined, like what is evidence? Well, it's anything that proves or disproves a fact and contention. I mean, right? Yes. Yeah. Like evidence either supports the ongoing theory or hypothesis of what happened in this particular incident or it disproves it. Correct. Correct. So both are super important. Yes. For instance, you know, one type of evidence is testimonial evidence. Mm -hmm. And that's collected through interviews or interrogations of witnesses, suspect, and victims. And it's also, in the legal terms, it's also called direct or prima facie evidence. And the the term prima facie is the Latin, it's, you know, prima is first, and then fascia is appearance. And you can- Sounds like a spa treatment. (laughs) Actually, it would be kind of a nice spa <laughs> treatment, I think. You know, so the so the the word prima facie is or prima facie, it, you know, however you want to pronounce it, tomato, tomato, it's on its face or it's at first glance. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's like you were saying, so it's the it's sufficient and accepted as true until it's disputed or proven otherwise. And it's kind of similar to like the implied right of being innocent until you're proven guilty. Right. 
Yeah. So I actually have uh, an instance and like we do on our show, you know, we're just going to keep everything a little bit a little bit more vanilla and not use any names and not I'm actually (laughs) not even going to use genders because this is a murder and a domestic violence. Right. And so I have an example of this and it was a murder and there was a cell phone video that was involved and there was a prior domestic violence case against, you know, for two spouses. So spouse number one recorded their other spouse, we'll call them spouse number two, saying that the uh, spouse number two was saying, I heard voices, you know, telling me to kill other people. So spouse number one is like, this isn't the first time this has happened. You know, I'm, I got to get this on video because this, this is crazy and I'm kind of scared. And, you know, they had children together. So, and, you know, the whole way that the spouses and stuff work, it's, you know, it's, it's a little, they didn't want to leave, you know, they just wanted to just kind of get it and figure out what to do with this video and, you know, this audio. And so spouse number one is the one that recorded spouse number two saying that they heard voices, correct? So spouse number one ends up murdered. Yikes. Yeah. The domestic violence recording can potentially be prima facie evidence of one of the prongs of murder, which one of those is intent. Um, It's the elements of the prongs. So when you have any type of illegal, like, you know, murder or homicide, which murder is under homicide, but, you know, any, anything, any legal concept, then, you know, without, like I said, I could totally get into this and I could just explain this away. So I'm trying to keep, I know I'm, I'm trying to keep it interesting and a little bit shorter. So I apologize for, you know, stumbling over my words, but so it's one of the elements. So intent is one of the elements Mm -hmm. of murder and, you know, it's intent, act, cause, and then harm. And, you know, so there's, there's a lot of different, you know, ways to skin a cat per se. Right. And, you know, that, but that, that, recording actually did end up being one of the pieces of evidence that did prove that one that the spouse did murder the other spouse which was unfortunate but it happened. Yeah, you know, I actually was thinking about asking you to kind of go into I know that the word intent seems easy to understand, but I've actually experienced a disconnect when I'm communicating some of my casework to my family and friends who just kind of like to p- get pick into my job a little bit. Like when you say there has to be intent, like what does that mean legally? Like how do we prove intent in a way that matters when it gets to the court system? So intent is that there has to be some type of an, a knowledge or a will to behind some action. So there mm-hmm. was intent to kill, to murder the spouse and the intent was that that spouse was hearing voices. Right, right. Okay. Oh, my uh, gosh. Okay. Did, did that, I mean, did that kind of, you know. Well, I guess what you're saying is, like, it was obvious that the person, the re- they knew that the result of their actions was going to be criminal. Correct. And they did it knowing that and being kind of at peace with it to the point of actually understanding the, like, the reason why we have not guilty by reason of insanity is because we are questioning that person's ability to understand their intent or understand their actions. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, with this case that I'm referencing it, you know, it may sound like, well, wait a second, what about the insanity plea? And I was actually Mm going to, going to go into that a little bit, which is great that you brought that up. So, I mean, you know, this is, this is perfect. So this actually isn't, it's, it's not that because 
when all of this stuff started happening where, you know, I'm, I'm hearing mm-hmm. voices that are telling me to kill people, there had been a lot of marital problems prior and there had ah. been some drug use and some alcoholism and those types of things that were coming into play. And then it was the voices potentially ended up being a crutch. So because there was prior history that oh, that right. helped prove. So that's why I said that this video or this this um, recording ended up being prima facie because Okay. There was prior. So it helped prove that evidence true instead of disproving it. Yeah. Yeah. So with testimonial evidence, um, how do we work around things like people are liars? Like, so where is the whole he said, she said thing like an issue? And like, how do we, because, you know, interviews and interrogations you hear all the time about like, oh, somebody like recanting their confession or whatever. So like speak on that for me, if you will. Well, so testimonial evidence is it's a statement, you know, that that's you're making Mm -hmm. you're making a statement and you're making it appear to be true. So it's a statement made under Mm -hmm. oath. And, you know, it would be just like a witness in court, you know, saying, oh, my gosh, that, you know, that's the guy that did it. You know, they they do that in the drama TV shows and such, you know, do you see this person in the courtroom? And like, that's him. That's (laughs) not how this stuff works. It's really not that sexy when you're actually involved in it. No. Yeah, no, it's it's really not. But your question was about like the testimonial evidence. Yeah, and- yeah. Like, how do we escape the fact that people lie and call it like testimonial evidence? You know. Well, there, I mean, there's a lot of different ways. So it depends if you're in criminal or civil court. So uh, one okay. of the ways is immediately after the incident, you're going to interview a bunch of witnesses and you're going to learn that some of their stories don't align. Mm-hmm. Then after you interview them, then maybe you might ask them for you know, a written statement and maybe their written statement doesn't align with their audio. And people's memories do come back and they do change. And, you know, especially when you're rethinking about something, everyone does this in their daily life. So you, you know, you go to the grocery store and you get rear-ended and then you think, Mm -hmm. oh my gosh, if I would have done something a little bit different, then maybe I would have gotten rear-ended, you know, something, something like that. So you're kind of Monday night quarterbacking all of your moves. And I think when, when people are involved in you know, either criminal, you know, criminal activity, they Monday night quarterback. So especially witnesses, because they want to make sure that they have everything, the truthful ones, you know, they want to make sure that they have everything that they could potentially that they say is true and that they have all the information. So, you know, you're on scene in the homicide investigators, you know, if it's if it's a homicide. So the homicide investigators are out there and they're interviewing the witnesses and the witnesses are giving their audio. Then we ask them for potentially for a written statement or if they're not going to give a written statement, then we might take their deposition. And if we do any of these things, then we can double check their audio to that written statement. Uh Uh-huh. And (laughs) I actually have another story because this is kind of crazy. (laughs) You're like, I've got yeah, I'm like, wow. Yes, I know. This is this is a great. (laughs) This is a great. Yeah, this is a great. I'm just I'm sidetracking. I'm so sorry. But no, go for um, it. I want to hear your stories. Yeah. So. You know, so this guy, you know, on this on this one case, it was an officer involved shooting and we interviewed a bunch of witnesses. And then the, there was one guy that just he it was he was an eyewitness, but mm-hmm. his story just didn't quite make sense. Mm-hmm. And he blamed it on a language barrier. So then we took his deposition and he was explaining how the incident occurred, how the uh, person that the officer shot and killed, how they acted prior to the shooting. 
And it just wasn't driving. It wasn't driving. Uh And it's crazy because, you know, here's more evidence. So the person that the officer shot and killed, we had an autopsy. So we have the trajectory. uh, You know, we have the Mm -hmm. the rods and stuff. So we know the the entrance wounds. Yes. Yes. We have the entrance and the exit wounds. And so we know all this stuff. And the way that he was describing this, it's like that that couldn't have happened. And so actually in his deposition, we asked him to perform it on video because it was a video (laughs) deposition. And so we have him acting out. And... I think the guilt just just completely just took over. And he then, like, in the middle of it, he then stood up because we asked him another question, like, you know, okay, if you said that this happened, so can you go kind of go back and, and redo that portion again? And he said, I can't. I can't. I'm lying. That's not how this happened. And he's like, I just, I'm so scared. And he was like, you know, I, I just, I don't really want to be involved. <gasps> and I'm just, I fear for my life and for my family's life. So what I a just. stupid asshole. You don't, you yeah. can't. Yeah. <laughs> Like it was, it was mind blowing. And literally, you know, you're, you're in the deposition or you're watching the, cause you know, it's video. So you're watching the yeah. deposition. You're just like, no, like no. it was insane. It was absolutely insane. He how blew this all that whole situation out. up. Oh yeah. It was, I mean, this, this case was just, it was a shit show from the get go. And man, now that's the sexy for TV stories there. That, oh, this one. Oh, it, it actually gets better because then that witness who said that he was in fear for his life ended up a couple months later getting busted for being part of the drug cartel. <laughs> so he's so afraid, so afraid. Yeah. But you know, so it's like, it was, it was crazy. And it was that, that was amazing. So yeah. So that you know, just don't so lie. Good. So yeah. So I mean, you know, you're you're not the only person that witnessed something, and even if you are the only person that witnessed something, the way that you get around people being dishonest is mm-hmm. physical evidence. Yeah. So why don't you get into physical evidence? Great, that's perfect parlay, my friend. So we already kind of got into the different kinds of the two general classifications of class evidence or individual um, groups or it was definitely you. So things (laughs) that break physical evidence down into a few more subcategories is you have biological evidence. And this is evidence derived from a living item. So physiological fluids, blood, semen, spit, whatever. Even plants count as biological evidence. Some biological pathogens, things like bacteria, fungus, and other microorganisms, Mm-hmm. Those all constitute biological evidence. And then additionally, we have chemical evidence. So when you think about the fact that people can die of carbon monoxide poisoning or like charcoal burning suicide is a thing that I researched in college, like crazy oh, thing. Oh, you got to get into that. You have to explain that. Okay. So one of my topics that I, um, you know, we were assigned in my master's program to do a deep dive into a particular cause of death. So as we have referenced in earlier episodes, there is manner and cause of death. And manner has to be homicide, suicide, accidental, natural, or undetermined. But cause of death has no boundaries. And everybody was picking all of these basic topics like stabbing, arsenic, shooting, yada, yada, yada. And I decided that there was plenty of information being communicated to us in class about all of those things. And I wanted to explore a really unique cause of death. And I really couldn't tell you now how this came across my awareness, but there is a culture of people that take like these little cauldrons or pots 
mm-hmm. and they lock themselves in a confined environment. So kind of like how when people commit suicide in their car with the exhaust pipe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's almost that exact same thing. So they get themselves into a confined space and they light charcoal and the fumes emitted will ultimately kill you. Yeah. And now keep in mind, I'm about to age myself, but I wrote this paper in like 2007. So get out of here. So I don't age I know. <laughs> I know. Well, I've I mean, been in my saying, career by then. I know, girl, but I was like my master's program, so I should have been in a career. Oh, <laughs> uh, that's awesome, though. I thought that was really neat. So anyway, so that would be like another uh, – the chemical breakdown of the materials released into the air that the person ended up inhaling that resulted in their death. And then we also have pattern evidence. So this is anything with predictable pattern, appearance, or origin. So like those shoe impressions that we mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. patent fingerprints. Fingerprints yes. are a pattern. And- Patent versus latent. Yeah. So patent fingerprints are ones that are visible. So these are things that are sometimes fingerprints in blood or fingerprints in wax or even fingerprints that have been developed and processed. Mm -hmm. They have now gone from latent to patent and latent is not visible through the naked eye, which means that we have to use a developing mechanism to make them visible to us for analysis. So that kind of falls into the patterned evidence spectrum. And I mean, of course, that goes further. Mm-hmm. Patterns can exist in fibers, really in anything. Yes. And then we have trace evidence. So trace evidence is any evidence of such a small size that it could be easily overlooked or not easily seen or recognized. So touch DNA, hair, fiber, things that are teeny, teeny, tiny. That those are the main categories of physical evidence. I seem to mm-hmm. remember when when we were trying to promote our podcast. Yeah. And there was, you know, some little snippets of things and, you know, us kind of going back and forth. And we were talking about different, you know, things. And and I, uh, you know, I, I I had mentioned trace evidence and uh-huh. I forgot what you had meant, what you had said. You said I, I was so vanilla and there was a, Me? a very... Yeah, yeah. Oh, because we were talking about, um, we were going back and forth with all the different topics that we were going to cover on the show. Uh-huh. And I was like, how to cut down a hangman's noose. And you went, trace evidence. I'm like, okay, vanilla ice cream over there. Let's make it <laughs> trace evidence. Okay, listen, guys. I know that DNA can be very, very sexy evidence, but like hair, fiber, like that is like never. Okay, I shouldn't say never. That's a horrible lie. Typically, that's not like the most exciting evidence to collect. I mean, don't get me wrong. We absolutely collect it. It has significant value. But we're not like, woohoo, it's trace evidence collection day. <laughs> However, again, don't at me. I'm speaking for myself. Okay? Yes. yes. I, you might be a trace evidence pariah or guru or ninja. Congratulations for you. Every time I've had to collect trace evidence, it was like, fuck. (laughs) (laughs) Especially when you have to do – all right, so when we have a homicide victim, one of the things that you do to collect trace on them – well, you do many, many things. First of all, the body gets transported in a a very special body bag for the medical Mm -hmm. examiner's office. It is an all-white bag. And it is not made it, – or it's made out of like um, – how do you describe that material? I can't – like it's not like plastic, but it's something to where things can't fall through it. And you – it has a little lock on it that you will put evidence uh, it's almost tape like across. A, like a Tyvek. But it's it's thicker it's, than that, right? Yeah, yeah. But it's like uh, – mm-hmm. I mean, it's a body bag. Well, the point of it <laughs> is that you will not lose one single fiber off of that body. So then yes. – 
what we did from my one homicide where trace evidence was significant, this lady had been beaten to death. So we had reason to believe that there was somebody um, due to the bruising on her rib cage because there was kind of that Y where like legs and then like a big round plop or like a butt probably was. So we believed oh. that like somebody had sat on top of her and like pummeled yeah. her. Yeah. So that means there could be potentially trace evidence all over her. So we had her at the ME's office and we were using an ALS or an alternative light source, which an alternative light source for our audience provides you with lighting that falls outside the visible light spectrum. So that's that, you know, I, I referenced UVIR photography earlier. Mm-hmm. That's that infrared or ultraviolet photography. Mm-hmm. So we were viewing her under a UV light. And at the time that I did this, the best practice was we actually bought white post-it notes. Okay. And you would take the sticky part and you would do like the upper right arm and then put the sticky note in a little evidence bag and seal it. And then you would mm-hmm. label it like upper and you would do the whole body that way in segments with like white sticky notes. And it would So capture. you're saying you would take the sticky notes and you would like dab mm-hmm. it on. Like, yes. 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 Yeah. Exactly. So that that way you could collect the trace, the potential trace mm-hmm. evidence because you can't, while trace evidence, you can sometimes mm-hmm. see, sometimes it's so small that you can't see or there's like a yes. little hair or something. It's right. the same color. So picking it up on a white sticky note would definitely help you out. So then you took that white sticky note and then what did you do with it? We would individually package them mm-hmm. into like uh, separate evidence envelopes and okay, label so where it was from. Sorry, I'm going to totally interrupt you on this because sure. we kind of did something a little bit similar. However, what we did with ours was when we labeled them, so we we like would stick the sticky note. So, you know, from the shoulder down to the elbow, there was, you know, let's say five or six sticky notes down there, depending on how, Mm -hmm. you know, how long the arm was. So let's just say six, right? So then we would number them one through six, take a photo. And then that way we would be able to document exactly where on the body we found that trace evidence. Yeah. I mean, we definitely took, that's a really great best practice, Shelly. We didn't. Sometimes you don't have time for that. Yeah. (laughs) No, no, it's not that we didn't have time for that. It's just that we had a different methodology. You know, a lot of photographs were taken of her with the ALS and, you know, alternative light source. Yeah. Yes. Right. So, and that ALS was also helping us in our search for the trace evidence. So we were able to kind of I mean, you don't rely on it, but we were able to see. So you would do like upper right arm, lower right arm, depending on how much was collected on the the post-it or the sticky. Correct. Yeah. Right. So trace and evidence. It depends can on help you. you know cases are different too. So you know my case was a little bit uh-huh. different than yours, and so of course, yeah. So you know best practice for me might not have been best practice for you because it's a totally different case, and mm-hmm. you know that. So you know not one is not better than the other necessarily. More than one way to skin a cat, right? Yes. So the way that these types of evidence that we went over are kind of utilized in order to make something of it, like why does collecting this stuff matter, right? One way is something called determination of corpus delecti. And I really like saying those Latin words. It just makes me feel like I'm (laughs) in Legally Blonde when she's like, do you know about habeas corpus? I didn't think so. (laughs) And of course, she used it completely wrong. But (laughs) one of my good friends is a defense attorney, and she found this little kitten outside of the courthouse, and she adopted him and named him Capius because he's a criminal. (laughs) 
Oh my! Because he gosh. was trespassing at the courthouse. <laughs> that is so. That's hilarious. I love that. I thought that was funny too. So, Aww. determination of corpus delicti is essentially the evidence that you gather that determines or illustrates or convey that a crime has actually happened. So this can be something very, very clear, like the body, Mm -hmm. or it can be something less clear, like a blood stain. And it can also say that a crime didn't happen. There have been more than one occasions where I thought there was blood on a scene because I saw a reddish brown stain. And then when I did my phenolphthalein presumptive blood test, give me a second, Shelly. I know you're going to make me say what that is. (laughs) Um, (laughs) On the stain, it showed up negative. So squirreling back, phenolphthalein is a test that we as crime scene investigators use in the field, one of many. So if your Mm -hmm. unit uses a different one, no worries, where we can very quickly determine the presence of the hemi and hemoglobin, and it can give us a very quick result of whether or not this is blood. Of course, because we are not laboratory technicians, that sample after the positive result would be forwarded for a a deeper lab analysis. However, you can have on a phenolphthalein test a false positive, but you cannot have a false negative. And that's very important because that's why we have the lab confirm the test. Yes. But you'll never have real blood show up as not real blood. And does phenolphthalein tell you the difference between human blood and animal blood? I know that there has been evidence that certain Like, I think there are two animals that I cannot recall right now that have previously shown up positive on a phenolphthalein test, Mm -hmm. but that is why we have that validation at the lab. You know, um, we are not laboratory technicians. We are not biologists. We do a superficial layer of testing, just like how we said in our autopsy episode, we do a preliminary superficial examination of the body. We don't do any cutting. It's kind of the same concept, but on an evidentiary plane. Yeah. I mm-hmm. I want to say that it was like like a, a mouse or like a groundhog or it was like some I, little like yeah. something like that that I remember. Yeah. My CSI friends, you can at me about this. Remind me what hits positive on a phenolphthalein test, please. Yeah. 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 I don't remember. I, I think it, I mean, I want to say it's pig, but I think that's too general because we use pigs a lot to practice yeah. crime scene yeah. stuff. Yeah. Pig blood is It might be yeah. horse. It might be horse. We'll see. Yeah, uh, they'll trust me. They'll let me know. <laughs> oh, perfect. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Definitely let us know because, you know, top of our head, okay. we can't remember. Yeah. And the other thing that evidence can tell us is things like modus operandi identification. So I feel like MOs at this MO. point or yeah, MOs are kind of more streamlined. But essentially an MO, for those of you who don't know, it's, you know, criminals repeat behavior. They use the same method of entry. They use this, they like prefer to use bladed or sharp force trauma or knives rather than guns, or they prefer women or men of a certain age preference. Um, Or Jeffrey Dahmer likes to lure in homosexuals and then eat mm -hmm. them. Yeah. In fact, one of the things that made Richard Ramirez unique was that he didn't have an established MO. Every victim was different and every. Mm Homicide was different. So that's why he was unique, but he's an outlier. So, yes. like, even things as simple as burglary, they do the same thing that made them successful before. Mm-hmm. Use a center punch tool on the sliding glass door, whether or not it's through a window. 
are evidence scene to scene to scene. If we have like a string of crime, and by the way, guys, not everything is serial killing. You know, if we have a Correct. string of crime, we're going to see those repeated patterns in evidence. And the mm-hmm. evidence can help us tell that story. And this is one of the ways that, you know, we're able to link crimes maybe in other jurisdictions is this repeated pattern of behavior, right? So mm-hmm. yeah. That's cool. So that's usually that, what the detectives look for is they look for, yeah. if, you know, if there is like a spur, you know, a splurge or whatever of, of of homicides, then they will look to see if there's any similarities. They'll look for the MO and then that's how they kind of gauge and, you know, look. Which for is why CSIs deserve a seat at the table. That because we're hungry. Yeah, well, I mean, and we're typically tucked away in a law enforcement agency from the rest of the personnel. Like, we're sequestered in our lab with our drying chambers and our fumes from our chemicals and our odors from our evidence and Mm -hmm. shelves of equipment and packing materials. And they only think of us when they need us, and then they forget about us. So They don't think of us when they're ordering pizza. (laughs) Well, they definitely don't. Well, I, okay, again, I have to say that I have not experienced that as bad as some of my colleagues in the field, but I do know that I have been forgotten about during the mealtime and I have Mm -hmm. kicked every one of those detectives right in the shins. There you go. Right in the shins, (laughs) right in the shins. I don't even care. So, (laughs) so either way, CSIs can help you figure out that MO when you have a repeated pattern of behavior, particularly maybe from one individual or a group of individuals. Yeah. And that kind of gets me into a Before you go into another concept. So I want to talk about MO and how, and and actually just reiterate your point. So we actually had uh, a homicide detective and, you know, their their team Mm -hmm. and they're looking and they're trying to figure out, you know, the MO. And lo and behold, the CSI was the one that said, hey, I'm the one that has been out on like almost every single one of these crime scenes. And I'm noticing that there's this. And Mm -hmm. the homicide detectives were like, we had absolutely like we we just overlooked that. That's that's something that we really didn't even notice. And it was something that wasn't necessarily picked up as physical evidence. It was just something that, you know, she's like, I just, you know, I just have this like weird feeling. And, you know, every scene that I've been on, why don't you check into that? And turns out they checked into it and that's, that was, that was their MO. And so Mm -hmm. like the MO does not necessarily have to be, you know, a certain type of physical evidence or, you know, like you were, you were talking about earlier, you know, with a certain gender or age or race or, you know, sexual origin or anything like that. It's just, it's pretty crazy. It can be almost anything. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, they always teach you in school that, people that are experiencing like antisocial personality disorder with that psychosis to where like you go from being somebody like a Bernie Madoff into somebody that's a homicidal maniac. They tend to have an age, gender, and at times ancestry or race preference. One of my cases in college that I worked with my mentor was uh, we found eight skeletons in the woods and they were all Hispanic males in their 30s. So that was really cool for me to work back when I was a fledgling a little duckling following behind her heels can i just say that you know you didn't even ask me what this what this thing that this csi found i didn't i don't know why i didn't do that probably because you know we don't want to get into too many details because you know for okay well tell me tell me tell me but uh so there was 
uh, every crime scene, there was something specific. So they urinated in the toilet. And the way that they left the toilet paper, it was like the same every time where it was like one sheet would be like on the bowl and the rest of it would be in the toilet. And, you know, how, like, why, you know, for those of you who don't know, why are you asking if, you know, what what the heck, why is the CSI taking photos of the toilet? Well, in all scenes, that's what you do. We definitely do that. 100%. We take pictures of everything. Yes, yes. And toilets are definitely something you take a picture of because there's been scenes where, you know, people try to flush evidence or they flush (sighs) pills or something down the toilet. So, yeah. And so she noticed this and she was like, you know, it's just really weird because it it, it just seems like it's placed there. And yeah, that's that's what happened. I love CSIs. Yeah. And well, the the dude was an idiot and he actually did that to the toilet in the jail and his bunkie was like, what the heck's going on here? And that's when they figured out who it was. He was arrested for something minor. But yeah, ended up getting knocked for the big crimes. I love that story. I love it. Okay. So another reason why or another way that evidence helps us is Mm -hmm going to tie directly into some of the things that you said about that testimonial evidence. The evidence can disprove or support mm-hmm. victims, suspects, mm-hmm. witnesses, statements. Yes. It can support or not support what they say, basically. Everything now makes sense because of what we see in the evidence and what we see from the uh, statements. Or, as you mentioned earlier, we can be like, nope. <laughs> Not so much. Nope. Not today, Junior. And, you know, I think we've all had those scenes where we're like, wait a darn tootin' mitten. (laughs) This A plus B does not equal C here. Exactly. (laughs) You know. A darn tootin' minute. A darn tootin' minute. (laughs) They don't say that in Florida. Settle down. (laughs) Yeah, we don't say that in Florida. I think my kids must have had on a cartoon or something. Who knows? (laughs) So, you know, I've mentioned, I think before, there's always two reasons why something doesn't make sense. And it's not just in forensics. It's kind of in life. Mm -hmm. And the two reasons are you don't have all of the information Mm -hmm. or there's a lie. Exactly. There's no other reason why something doesn't make sense. So Phenomenological stuff. Yes, exactly. So evidence can either call you out on your big, fat, lying ass, or (laughs) the evidence can validate you in your truth and it will set you free. (laughs) Oh, wow. (laughs) Evidence can also help us with identifying who these suspects and victims are and at times the crime scene location. I, you know, sometimes we don't even know what happened or where it happened. Mm -hmm. And you can have things like secondary or tertiary crime scenes. So for what I mean by that is, let's just say that you had a homicide in a home and the suspect puts the victim in his vehicle and transports the body to a third location for concealment. Mm -hmm. The primary crime scene is the location where the homicide happened. The secondary scene would be the car and the third scene would be the dumping site. So that's evidence kind of kind of convey that to us, Mm -hmm. can show us, you know, through blood or trace or prints or Mm -hmm. artifacts, things like little, you know, you always hear about like, oh, this person overlooked this one little thing that they dropped. Yes. 
So that's how a way that evidence can support crime scenes. And also it can provide investigative leads. And and what's that what's that term again? That one where you know when you every time you go to a crime scene, you leave something behind? Oh, okay. So the, the, the premise behind the low card evidence exchange? and yes, the low card <laughs> exchange theory. So it the low card exchange theory again is the concept that every contact leaves a trace. So you can't enter a scene or leave a scene without leaving something there or taking something with you. There's always a transfer that happens. And our role in CSI is to collect, identify, develop that trace transfer, like evidence that there was a contact between two things. Yes. So... There is actually something they teach us in school that ties into this theory called the evidence linkage triangle. So Mm -hmm. that is a little triangle that you'll see. And one uh, corner will say the scene, the other corner suspect, and the other the victim. And it's basically saying the scene is going to have put evidence on the suspect and the victim. The victim's going to have evidence on the scene and the suspect. And of course, that then means the suspect will have evidence of their presence in both the scene and the victim. Now, that's not always easy. And sometimes science isn't always able to get us there. Mm -hmm. But that is foundational. So there was a crime scene once in my second city that was really, really difficult because we had no body. So when you're trying to prosecute a homicide scene without a Mm -hmm. body, that's bad news bears. Like, that's not fun. Essentially, what happened is two men Mm -hmm. were neighbors, and they were constantly in conflict. Constantly. Okay. And these altercations turned physical sometimes, Mm -hmm. most of the time, and they continued to get more and more violent until one day there was an altercation and the one neighbor completely disappeared, fell off the place of the planet. Okay. All right. And the wife was communicating to law enforcement when she reported him missing that the neighbor and her husband had been particularly at each other's throats lately over Mm -hmm. something about the property line and grass and keeping things tidy. I don't, it was something very, very benign to most people with a sane mindset. So (laughs) (laughs) neighbor lines are something serious. Exactly. So needless to say, because you already know that there was a homicide and Mm -hmm. you already know I had no body. Yes. This guy had all kinds of priors and we were able to get a warrant to search his home. He had a really large truck. Oh. And in South Florida, we have several different garbage sites, like where, like, they collect the trash and it's, like, the big mountain. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the dumps. Yeah, Yeah, the dumps. Thanks. Yeah. Okay. Okay. But it wasn't, like, a dump like you see, like, on the Sopranos where it's, like, a big pile of trash. Like, they find a way to, like, put this chemical on it and it, like, melts it down and they shove it in some Florida garbage mountain. I don't know. We probably only do it in Florida because we're weird. No, no, we shove it. We shove it underneath one of our freeways here. And that's how, because oh. yeah, you could tell when, when the freeway like gets all these dips and stuff where you feel like you're riding a roller coaster oh. when you're driving on it, they need to pump more of that in there. Yeah. yeah. You're probably yeah. Driving, driving over bodies, but yeah. yeah, probably. So this guy, this, uh, these neighbors lived near one and the truck had recently been washed 
particularly the bed. Oh. And uh there was video evidence from people's ring doorbells of him driving with a roll something that was rolled up in a bunch of blankets. Oh my gosh. That is so that's such a rookie Mm -hmm. mistake. Bro, come on. Well, I mean, it was like if you follow the ping on his phone, and ping is like a (laughs) way that we like (laughs) another rookie mistake. I know. If you follow the ping on his phone, it shows him driving. Because, you know, the radius on these things isn't as precise as TV yeah, shows. No, no. Right. So his phone was pinged on the way to the dump, but you can't determine that he part- like definitely went there. But this dump had like a lot of retention ponds. There was a lot of wooded area. So it's very, very likely that... <laughs> Mm-hmm. This was where that man ended up. So uh-huh. we had the task of trying to establish what happened without having a victim. Like, what's to say that this guy is actually dead and that he didn't run off and, I don't know, fuck around somewhere? Like, we have no way <laughs> of knowing that. His mistress. Yes. So they <laughs> ended up finding one teeny tiny drop of blood in side the door like when you open the door the surface mm-hmm. that occludes with the door frame yeah. there was like a teeny tiny drop of blood that belonged to the victim and that mm. was like the only evidence wow. for that entire case wow and we did so many searches through that dump like over and over again we sent the dogs through wow mm-hmm. wow Huh. Are there any pig mm-hmm. farms nearby? Um, well, <laughs> actually, they w- there are a lot of farms, but not not close, but not far, if that makes sense. No pig farms cl- close by or anything? No pig farms close by. <laughs> Very red dragon of you. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So basically what we're trying to get at with all of this is that evidence tells a story and one that, you know, it's our job to not necessarily interpret evidence, but gather information from it and let it tell its own story. So we have to treat all evidence exactly the same ethically in CSI. So the lack of evidence Mm -hmm. is also evidence, right? Yes. Yes. Right. Absolutely. So yeah, there's, you know, there's, there's evidence admissibility issues, obviously, right? When you're, when you're dealing with Mm -hmm. courts and stuff. So, you know, admissible evidence uh, is it's obviously it's a document, it's testimony or it's some type of tangible or physical item that can be used to, like we said, to prove a fact or to potentially disprove something. And there's, you know, we get into the the Dalbert or Daubert, however you want to mm-hmm. pronounce it. Um, <laughs> and there's different criteria under that case. And that under that case, it's, you know, you have general acceptability. Right. There has to be the established standards controlling the technique's operation or accuracy. And there has to be a known potential rate of error. And okay. then the testability of the procedure regarding, you know, the the method or collection or whatever of right. that evidence. So scientific method is very important. And like this ethics is huge. Yes. Ethics is huge. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So, you know, an, a, another admissibility issue would be a suppression of an inadmissible evidence. So yeah. So, you know, suppression of evidence is, it's usually, it's a motion that is made and it's prior to a hearing or a trial. And it doesn't necessarily mean that, well, suppressing the evidence means that you want to 
tell mm-hmm. the judge to not use it. And it doesn't necessarily mean that it's not relevant. It just simply means that there's a reason that they want to not have that evidence be admissible. And there could be chain of custody issues. In other words, mm-hmm. you know, it, whatever you collected on scene wasn't properly secured, uh, mm-hmm. you know, pri- or you collected something prior to a search warrant. So, you know, you can't use that unless you have a search warrant in certain cases. Yeah, that's what the Constitution is for, y'all. Exactly, exactly. Um, You know, and if you have these things, then, you know, how can you trust the results? You know, if it's like mislabeled blood, right? So, you know, you were talking about the, you know, blood collection and stuff. So it might be questionable on the competence of it because if it's mislabeled or if it's collected improperly, you know, then that's an issue. Also, there's lack of evidence. So, you know, that's what we were just talking about. You know, there's also the issue of why wasn't it collected? Was it an error? Was it a bias? Yeah. So this is something that we've definitely talked about in previous episodes where I've said, like, you know, when we photograph evidence on scene, we do it with and without scale because we want to be showing transparency. And elaborating on your comment about train of custody issues. All right. So, There are many, many reasons why chain of custody is important, Mm -hmm. and some of that has to do with evidence integrity. If you do not have proper chain of custody or evidence collection documentation methods and collection methods that are going from least invasive to most invasive, Mm -hmm. you might – or if the scene isn't properly secured, right, and protected – Correct. Things can go wrong. Things like addition of materials to the scene that can either throw off the skew of truth Mm -hmm. or contaminate evidence. Yes. You can have destruction of material in the scene Mm -hmm. or movement of material in the scene. And as you'll hear, or maybe you have heard, the placement of certain things in a scene It's very, very important. That's why we measure things like distance in a crime scene sketch. Yes. That's why millimeters matter. Yes. All of these things are very, very important with evidence integrity. And if somebody is going to be convicted of a crime and sent to prison for the rest of their life, they deserve to have a ethical, thorough, and scientific investigation into the crime that they are being accused of. Exactly. And the victim deserves that, too. So this is an all-encompassing concept. Like, this isn't against – this isn't in favor of the state. This isn't in favor of the defense. This isn't in favor of the suspect or the victim. This is in favor of the truth. You know, physical Mm -hmm. evidence cannot be intimidated. It doesn't forget. It sits there. It waits to be detected, preserved, evaluated, and explained. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So that's a good wrap up. Thanks for listening to the Crime Scene Queens. And if you have any friends that might be interested in learning about evidence or how it relates to different crime scenes and maybe even how it's relevant in the courtroom, make sure that you turn them onto this podcast. If your friends want to learn anything about CSI from the inside, tell them to check out our show. Absolutely. And remember, you're going to die. Please do your local CSI a favor and just keep it interesting. Bye, everyone. Till next time. Crime Scene Queens is a Q Code Media production. Executive producers David Henning and Steve Wilson. Produced by Ryan Countshouse. Edited by Nate Dufort. Theme song and music by Darren Johnson.
In the 1970s, John Todd burst onto the evangelical scene with a shocking tale. He claimed to be a former witch involved in a then unheard of secret organization called the Illuminati and urged Christians to prepare for a violent world takeover. First of all, the number one weapon in everybody's home should be a 12-gauge pump shotgun. Hear the amazing story of one of the originators of the modern-day conspiracy theory. From Magnificent Noise and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Cover Up, The Conspiracy Tapes. <laughs> 